When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that simply everything has its own history, like imps, dents, and ropes. Or hugs, tugs, and jugs. Plugs, slugs, and fugs. There's nothing like a good fug. No. Not especially around Christmas time. Happy Christmas, everyone. Happy Christmas. We will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, Sam? Who knew that the history of Jericho is about monasticism, women's societies, gridlock, and going underground. Like what I did there? <laughs> yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, very good. And pockets. Pockets are all about World War II, US politics, feminism, and, of course, the history of crime. I, I love the history of pockets. I want to write a book about the history of pockets. So do I. Maybe we'll, um, well, we'll certainly get it in. Yes. Um, are we doing I'm, I've just written pockets for World War II. Why? You're on it. Yes, I'm on it. Did you know that when paratroopers came out of their planes on D-Day, <laughs> their pockets split, showering uh, the contents of their pockets all over Normandy. Mm-hmm. Really... Sewing that... up pockets is interesting. Yes. Anyway, we're getting a little distracted. Lucy Lockett lost her pocket. The man sitting opposite me is the bus conductor of Route 1066 and all that. <laughs> love it. Thank I you. love it. That's brilliant. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam, and hello, everybody. Uh, and the man sitting opposite me is the St. Nicholas of nautical knowledge. Mm. It's the famous historical adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you very much for that, James. So this is part two of our Christmas special because we got very carried away with our part one and it ended up being really long. We only talked about half of what we were going to talk yes. about. Um, so we're going to carry on. Yes, I'm going to start, though, before because otherwise I might forget. Since this is Christmas and Happy Christmas, yes. I'm not going to see you over Christmas, but I have a little gift for you Ooh. to open. Oh, my God, he's bought me a present. Live on air. <sighs> Happy Christmas, Sam. He he has got nothing for me. <laughs> so thoughtless. It's so big, I couldn't get it in my shed. That's the problem. Uh, That's it. What is this, a mousetrap? Is no, it a primed no, no, mousetrap? No, you'll see. You'll see and you'll think, ah, oh, how thoughtful. It's not going to cause me pain. It's not. Is it the opposite of that? You look a bit hurt, actually, when you even suggest that. No, no. Um, so, okay, it is about the size of a small biscuit tin. It's not biscuits. It's not food. It's not biscuits, but it's um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a couple of inches high. It's rectangular. Uh, I think it would be meaningful when you open six it. Six or seven inches along. Do you have members of your family who talk you through your opening of gifts? Yes, I, I, I also have. I also have two daughters who basically open my gifts for me. <laughs> yeah, my two. Daddy, could we just help you undo the sellotape? Okay, uh, I'm. I'm not a very good unwrapper of things. It's almost as if you're trying to preserve. 
<laughs> That's very funny. <laughs> so tell them what it is and why I oh chose God, it, it for even you. smells. Uh, he has bought me some Lynx Africa <laughs> um, body spray and body wash. Now, this is because... Wow. Yeah, there's a reason for this. In it's our live show that we've been doing, we have there's a section where we talk about the history of perfume. And Sam and I have got this perfume from... The Mary, the Mary Celestia, Mary Celestia, Mary Celestia, and it's about eighteen sixties, yeah. and it's re, and what we do, it's 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 a, they they harvest the genetic DNA of the perfume, and they've recreated it, and so it's perfume that was found in a ship, bottle yes. of perfume found in a shipwreck. Some very clever um, scientists have recreated the perfume. And um, we hand a bit of it around at our live show so people yes. can smell some perfume from the 1860s. And then one, one person, we asked them what, the, what it smells like, and somebody shouted out, it smells exactly like Lynx Africa. <laughs> and neither of us uh, use no. Lynx Africa or had any idea. No. Sam now uh, has Lynx Africa. I do, I do. So um, does it smell like the perfume? No. No, I think I, I, I think, think that's they really, were, I think that it was a joke that they were making. It was a joke making, but it's nice to know what Lynx Africa actually smells like, and yes. it, it doesn't smell like a beautifully handcrafted perfume from the eighteen sixties. No, well, in the morning when you when you um, if should you should you ever use that, <laughs> you'll know exactly what it smells like. So Christmas, where are we going with Christmas? I, I, I think we should offer it as a prize. We should offer. We should definitely <laughs> offer it as a prize. Um, Christmas for me is all about food. Yes, and I said last time that I I tried to order my Christmas turkey in in September, which yeah. was slightly too early. Uh, although I have ordered now ordered the most brilliant uh, Christmas turkey, which is deboned and Ooh. and then stuffed, and then with lattice work of of bacon all around. Amazing Darts Farm butchery, brilliant. I've also made my Christmas cake. Yeah, uh, Mary Berry's uh, apricot Christmas cake. So uh, last year we fed your Christmas cake. As it was last year or the year before we fed it. I didn't bring it along uh, this time. Okay, I'm a bit disappointed in it. I've taken pictures of it. It's not my usual Delia Smith trusty uh, Christmas cake, so I'm experimenting this year. But mm. Christmas is all about food. And it's all about the history of carrots. Mm. And this relates to some work that I've been doing on the history of carrots for World War II. Mm-hmm. What happens when you've got rationing and you can't get fats and lard and you can't get hold of all the ingredients that go into a cake, primarily sugar. Well, instead, a cake or a Christmas pudding. During the war, you have to be very handy and use what is being grown. Carrots. And carrots were... Vegetables were never rationed during the war, while other things like all the things that I was talking about and jam and and meat Mm. were all rationed. But there was this great big push for dig for victory. So everyone sort of turned over their gardens and all sorts of space and parks and golf courses were all turned over to helping out the, the war effort. And carrots were a one of the sort of staple commodities that they encouraged people to grow. And Dr. Carrot was a cartoon character who carried a vitamin A uh, labelled suitcase. And he was one of the characters that was used to try and tell people about um, the healthy benefits of carrots. What happened was that by by 1943, they had a surplus of 100,000 tonnes of carrots. Hmm. And they produced a little cookbook for carrots, a leaflet, leaflet number four, it's the Ministry of Food Cookery Leaflet Number Four, which is dedicated entirely to carrots. And you have 
recipes for raw carrots, even thrifty recipes for a carrot cap salad, steamed carrots, boiled carrots, braised carrots, carrots and sprouts, carrots and peas, <laughs> carrots baked round the joint, mm. carrot soup, and... These are just ways of cooking them rather than recipes. Them. Curried carrots, carrot croquettes, uh, carrot savoury, which is a uh, which is carrots, margarine, and flour, and the wonderfully titled War and Peace Pudding. War and Peace Pudding. War and Peace Pudding. And this would have been cooked in wartime. It was made in Canada during the First World War, and since then many people haven't bothered with it. But I'm just going to read you the recipe. Mix together one cupful of flour, one cupful of breadcrumbs, half a cupful of suet, you need to save that, half a cupful of mixed dried fruit, and if you like, a tablespoon of mixed sweet spice. Then add, and here's the important thing, a cupful of grated raw potato, a cupful of grated raw carrot, and finally, a level teaspoon of bicarbonate of soda dissolved in two teaspoons of hot water. Mix all together, turn into a well-greased pudding bowl, and the bowl should not be more than two-thirds full. Boil or steam for at least two hours. Mm, nothing says Christmas like carrot pud. Uh, and that's what you'd have at Christmas? Yes. Hmm. Yes, war and peace pudding. So this is a recipe for a Christmas pudding that would have been made during wartime. Wow. Eat your heart out, Heston Blumenthal. <laughs> Cup of raw potato. Yes, with and... your with your dissolving orange stuck in your <laughs> middle of your pudding. I had one of those one year and it didn't work. Ooh. I took it back to Waitrose and they're such nice people at the local Waitrose. Uh, they just gave me another pudding. Hmm, that's nice. It was very kind. Wait, Christmas is a time for returns, isn't yes, it? Yes, it um, is. Yes. What have you got for us about Christmas? I've got the Holocaust, guilt, shame and denial. Oh, Sam. <laughs> that's lovely. Isn't it? It's lovely. It's I, my, I'll, I'll then read you something nice to put you back in the Christmas it's spirit. It's my Christmas gift to you, James. I consciously chose to talk about this um, because it is not a obviously joyous Christmas theme, but it's very, very important. And it's something I came across when I was writing for our little book, Histories of the Unexpected for World War II, which mm. we've, we've, we've nearly finished. And I wrote a chapter on rubble. Mm. Now... I haven't read that one yet. Oh, it's really, really, really interesting. Looking forward to it. Yeah. There are two aspects of the history of rubble, which one of them we can't really talk about because it's not that Christmassy, but there were rubble women. You know, you talk about puzzle women. <gasps> yeah, There were rubble women who cleared the sort of German streets of rubble. Um, it, it's really, really important. But there were also rubble films. Goodness me. Yeah. So rubble the, films? Rubble films. So these were films that were made just immediately after, really early on after the war. 46. And they were set in the ruins of German cities. And it was part of a drive to regenerate the very high-quality German film industry. Now, the films that were made were controlled or censored by the Allies who were in in control of that part, whether it was the Russians the East or, or um, Americans and the French particularly, uh, in West Berlin. So they were in control of the types of films that the Germans were allowed to make, but they were all set in rubble. And they were not allowed to include any sense of militarism or national pride. And they had to directly address the gravity of the nation's mistakes, not just during the war, but during the entire 12 years of Nazi rule. One of the earliest and most important was uh, released in October 1946, and it was called The Murderers Are Among Us. And it 
explores lots of really important themes that Berliners were experiencing after the war. So one of the themes that they explore, which actually has got a Christmas link, is is the idea of home and ownership and, and where you feel at home, mm. coming back to home. And it's the story of a woman who comes back to Berlin after the war and she walks through the rubbled streets of Berlin. She goes up to her flat and she she meets the optician who lives downstairs and he survived the war and they say hello and they it, it's a sort of a wonderful reuniting. And she goes back up to her flat, but there's someone in her flat. And Ooh. property theft and squatting was a massive problem after the war. So people didn't right. know who had survived, who had died, what the, what the situation is. So there's a very hostile, unpleasant guy living in her flat. A squatter? A squatter. He, he says it's his flat. She says, actually, it's mine. I've got all the paperwork. And he looks out the window with her and points at the, the wilderness of Berlin. He said all of these people had bits of paper too, but they don't anymore. Very, very sinister. He refuses to leave. So they end up sharing the flat and they actually get to know each other. Lots of kind of confrontations between them to do with decoration, to do with memory, to do with how things were before the war. This does come around to Christmas in a minute. It's fascinating. It is fascinating. But one of the most important bits is where they put the Christmas tree. Oh, love that There's this moment when they get a Christmas tree and they discuss where it's going to go. And the lady sets it up. And then the man stops, he goes pale, becomes very aggressive and hostile. And she's just put a small Christmas tree on the chest of drawers. And he he says to her, is that going to stay in this room? This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And she says, yes, of course it is. I've got lots of happy memories attached to the Christmas tree of my families before the war. It's actually one of the most important parts of of, of her Christmas, of her year. Mm. And it actually profoundly brings her back to this happy moment before the war. He, in a very cynical voice, says that that only works if the tree creates the right mood. So he's obviously got memories linked with Christmas, which are, which are not good. And what happens is that through a series of flashbacks, they explore what's happened to him. Mm. And it turns out that he was fighting in Russia. And on Christmas Eve, 
previous two years, he witnessed a war crime where his captain above him murdered a village full of Russians. And he tries to argue his captain out of the war crime, out of the execution on the basis that it's Christmas Eve. The captain refuses to accept that. And he tells the doctor, this guy called Mertens, to to just decorate the Christmas tree in the army barracks in which they're in. So this soldier is decorating the Christmas tree while outside the window, you see mass slaughter going on out through the window. And as Mertens realised that the guns are going off and he hears the slaughter, he drops the star that he's decorating the top of the Christmas tree with and it falls in the snow and it's trodden on. And then it gradually unfurls and it's the Star of David. And there's this moment, so actually he's, he's decorating the top of the Christmas tree with the Star of David and then there's mass slaughter going on outside. And so it's it's a scene that unpicks the Holocaust. It's a scene that unpicks... Um, the guilt and the shame involved with yeah, war yeah. crimes, and also very cleverly Gosh. links it all back to the themes of what's going on in Berlin after the war and memories associated with pre-war and Christmas. It's unbelievably clever. That's incredibly powerful. It is, and it really kind of highlights the complexities of Christmas across the ages and in different locations as well, and what Christmas and what memory, it's all so linked yeah. with history, can actually mean for people. It's very powerful, very dangerous. Yeah. So I want to go somewhere else. With this, and in our previous episode, we talked about fires and fire not being taken in and out of the the house because it was bad luck. Yeah, which brings me to the theme of superstition and Christmas. And you wouldn't believe the kinds of thing, kinds of superstitions that people had, particularly on Christmas Eve. Mm. And Christmas Eve was a time for love divination. So the idea that you would be able to predict who you were going to marry in the forthcoming year. I love that. So it's like a chink in the light of time. It is. So do you see what I mean? It's a it's, chink it's, in the light, of, light so, of time. So not a chink in the, what am I trying to say? Not light, the, the sort of the ladder of time. Yes. The process. So actually you can, at Christmas Eve, it allows... You're able to... Look forward or back. Yes. And do you know why? It's because the spirits and the witches are powerless on Christmas they're powerless. Eve. powerless powerless that's interesting so then that, so you can so so you're able to sort of dabble in those areas those sort of superstitious areas safely is that what without Scrooge thi- without does? things going wrong i imagine that's what he does exactly yes. what he does because yes. there's this bit where he looks he's out of the window and, yes. and, and the streets are full yes of spirits full of spirits yes. aren't yes. they all sort of move, moving around yes. and sort of going along we talked about uh, christmas carol in part 1 of this so if you we want did. to hear what we're talking we about go back to that so uh, the spirits are powerless i love that so love divination and there's a story recorded by one of those folklorists i was telling you about records this from derbyshire in the 1890s and it says that if a girl walk backwards to a pear tree <laughs> on christmas eve and walk round the tree 3 times she will see an image of her future husband. Wow. So it's this idea. Do you remember when we talked about Halloween and we talked about the 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 scuttle that was put on the fire yes, with, yes, nu- yes. with jumping nuts? Yes. It's another sort of tradition that's associated with working out who you were going to marry. I love that though. You should do the history of walking backwards. Is that even <laughs> can we Ooh, do that? Let's that is, challenge that ourselves. Is a very, that's a very good one. Is that a thing? Very I think so. Yeah. I think you could walk backwards in all sorts of ways. Backwardness. Walking backwards. I'm going to note down walking, particularly walking backwards. I think here we are. I'll type that up. Very good. Excellent. I have another. I have another superstition for you, which is related to Christmas cards. Okay. 
those of you who are sitting looking at your mantelpiece or your houses, wherever you put your Christmas cards, have a look at the Robin Christmas cards. We all love a Robin on a Christmas card, but did you know that they're in fact bad luck? Hmm. Superstition says that if a wild bird enters one's house, it spells death for someone in the family. And this extends to not only wallpaper, crockery, but also Christmas cards. And there again, there's one of my folklorists, 1955, recorded in Gloucestershire. A young woman told me it was a death sign to receive a Christmas card with a robin on it. This saying dashed me considerably at the time, as I had just had cards with robins printed. However, I sent them out in spite of the warning, and I'm happy to say that there was no undue mortality amongst friends that year. Hmm. Isn't that incredible? Do you have any Christmas robins um, around? Robins on the tree? Yes, we certainly used to have one. We used to have a little yep. little clippy kind of Victorian one. I think my mum my and dad have still got it. We've got, got it. tons. We've got tons. I might take them down this year. Do you know what? The more I think about Christmas, the more you, you sort of take the lid off it. It's full of some crazy, crazy stuff. It's full of weird stuff. Decorations. Yeah. You've already got your tree up. Yeah. And what are we? We're recording this on the 6th of December. Yeah. Your tree is already up. We're not allowed to have a tree up. My youngest daughter, uh, who's a very formidable young woman, will not let us have some decorations up until after her birthday, uh, which is on the 7th of December. Otherwise, I would have it up on, you know, last week in but, November. Yeah, but I mean, so so but it used to be a Christmas Eve thing. So it used to be a Christmas it? Eve thing and used to extend to Candlemas, which is the 2nd of February. So you would you would keep your deck, you'd put your decorations up on Christmas Eve very late. So there'd be a sort of hurry to do that. And then you but then you would leave them up for the entirety of January. And now the tradition is that you leave them up until Twelfth Night. Yeah, yeah. So although we, although a lot of people feel that after New Year is over, that it's a little bit sort of tired and sad. Yeah. To have things up. But before it, it's all to do with the darkest time of year. That's yes. That's why yes. it would have, yes. would have gone on yes. for so long. Yes. Um, but also, when you talk about Christmas trees, it's all kind of it was all upper class families. There's yes. there's a social yes. class thing to it, and I happen to know because I've been reading a Christmas Carol recently uh, for our, for part one of this podcast that there are no Christmas trees. In Christmas Carol, 1840s, 1843, it was too early. So the Christmas tree is a surprisingly modern invention. It really is surprisingly yes. modern invention. Mm. Holly. Holly. Holly, yeah. Superstition associated with holly. There are two superstitions here. One is of the type of holly that you bring in, prickly holly and smooth holly. The prickly holly is male and the smooth holly is female. Dependent on which type of holly you bring in first, that is going to be the person who is the master of the house for the rest of the year. <laughs> really? So if you bring spiky male holly in first, it means it's going to be a patriarchy. If you bring in smooth female holly, it's going to be a matriarchy. It's a nest of vipers, Chris. And then you can get everything wrong. Then you, you need to burn holly. We, in fact, we were on the Kerry White show, BBC Radio Devon, hmm. uh, a week ago. And she had a, a listener who phoned in saying that she had holly with berries on it and it needed to be burnt when it was taken out. And mm. that's, a, that's a tradition as well. Yeah. Well, 
Goodness who, me. I mean, I, I, it's, I think we could do an actual dedicated podcast to the unexpected history of Christmas and just keep going on. I think we could. So where have we gone? We've gone... I want to read us some Laurie Lee. Oh, you've got some more. Am I allowed to leave, read us a little bit of Laurie Lee? Yes, of course. Sort of get us in the, in the festive season. This is about putting up decorations around the time. This is from a brilliant collection that came out recently, A Village Christmas and other notes on the English year, which was sort of collecting together some of his his sort of seasonal writings. And there's a beautiful edition that came out. Christmas in the country meant feasts and fires, a few brief days of excess, when even the poorest amongst us would confront the stern gods of winter and the bravest possible show of good living. Everybody was busy this morning, chopping wood, carrying in logs, or sitting on the doorstep plucking ducks or geese. Now the time had come for us to go to the woods and collect leaves for decorating the house. This is Christmas Eve. Among the black and bare fir trees, we shook the snow from the undergrowth with frost-reddened fingers, seeking the sharp spiked holly, bunches of laurel and ivy, cold clusters of moon-pale mistletoe. With these, our sisters transformed the familiar kitchen into a grotto of shining leaves, an enchanted bower woven from twigs and branches sprinkled with scarlet berries. After tea, as darkness fell, we put on our coats and scarves and trooped off with mother to the town several miles down the wind-whipped valley. We always left the buying of our presents to this eleventh hour as part of the season's dramatic crescendo, joining the rest of our neighbours who were all now heading from the shops to catch the last glitter of Christmas Eve. So that that's, that captures it. The sort of early 20th century Christmas yeah. that everything was done on Christmas Eve. Yeah, Interesting there, the sort of gender distinctions as well. It's the sisters that do all the decoration inside and the boys that go out and get all the... Get all goodies, the holly and the logs the and, and, mm. and everything. So where have we gone? Where have we gosh golly, we've gone everywhere all over again, haven't we? Carrots. Carrots. We, we did carrots, carrots. Uh, we did dig for victory. We did darkness. Um we did a bit of darkness. Rubble. Rubble. Um Christmas Carol again. Yeah. A bit of Holocaust. Lynx Africa. Uh, Lynx Africa. We and, did Lynx Africa. And ending with Laurie Lee and back to Christmas trees. Yes. So uh, Lynx yeah. Africa, Lynxus makes me think about what we're doing in the new year. And we are doing more histories of the unexpected live, aren't we? We are. And in particular, we are at the upstairs at the gatehouse in Highgate yep. on the 2nd and 3rd of February. We're doing an evening show on the Saturday night and we're doing a matinee at four o'clock on the Sunday. So you should come along and see us if you live in the capital city of London town. Yeah, or not, you just come up and see us. We've got yes. a special offer for um, living history people. If you were a living history reenactor, and if you come along to one of our shows in your full regalia and kit, then we will give you a discounted ticket. You get an invite to a social meetup after the show where you'll get a free drink and you get a chance to win a prize. We want to see as many of you living history people there as possible. We think it's absolutely fantastic what you do. Brilliant. Now, if you like what you hear, please do leave us a review on iTunes, subscribe to the podcast and tell all your friends. We're on Twitter. You can follow me at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on at Unexpected Pod. We are proud to be part of the excellent History Hit Network, home of Dan Snow's History Hit and a slew of other great shows. Um, you can find out more about what we've got planned with our books and our live shows and everything on Histories of the Unexpected Thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you very, very much. And wherever you are, I hope you are having a wonderful Christmas. Bye. Bye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.